He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. Great to have you. Let's get right into it. Trump, who has been so good at selling, now has to move to closing, to borrow from uh, salesmen speak. He has to go from pitch to action here. He's got to move on from just explaining to the American people why it is that they should have certain policies in place, that the administration should do certain things for them to doing them. This is where there has to be a move to action. It is a shift uh, that is occurring right now. And the first piece of this that we see has to do with the budget and military spending. So here's what we know as of today. President Trump has put forward $54 billion dollars more for the military than was previously allocated, going to be allocated. This is about 10 percent above where the, where the budget caps had previously had it. And he's going to have to sell this to Congress because, as you know, president doesn't get to write the budget. President can come out with the budget. And this is where it's a matter of bringing the Congress along and selling this. Right. The pre- president Trump has to come out and say, we want to shore up some parts of our military. Of course, we already have the strongest, best trained and best overall military, not just in the world, but in the history of the world, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to say. And it is undeniably true. But the president comes out and says, well, we need more. And, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, great movie. Alec Baldwin in the movie, put his politics aside, is a pretty good actor. Always be closing ABC. This this president is always closing or trying to and i think we're beginning to see some of that happening right here and now he is pushing for action he wants the congress to act and 54 billion dollars in addition for to what they were already going to get for the dod is a step in the right direction now i think there'll be some criticism of this from the perspective of well we need to fix the the way that the pentagon does budget appropriations. We have to find ways to figure out what exactly the the Pentagon is wasting money on because that's happening. There's no question. The Pentagon, there's all these jokes about what does a toilet seat cost the Pentagon, 15000 or 20000 And those of you who have seen what some of the spending looks like, especially when they bring in contract government contractors, it, it can be outrageous. There's no question there is waste and even abuse inside of DOD spending. But there are also places where we do need more money. And the Trump model here or the idea is that you spend this money up front, peace through strength. You spend this money up front in addition to what we're already spending, which is huge. I mean, I want to make clear that I'm quite aware of what the U.S. is doing for its military spending relative to the rest of the world. Uh, After us, and we, we spend more than the next Seven highest spenders combined. After us, anyone want to take a guess in your head? What are the next three highest military spenders after the United States? China, Saudi Arabia, 
Russia. And then you get into the UK, India, France, Japan, mostly what you would expect. Saudi Arabia, I think, is surprising to many. But for one, the Saudis like really fancy gear. They like very expensive fighter planes. And uh, they obviously have a big budget to handle those kinds of acquisitions. And they also are preparing, I think, for the possibility of a very real Sunni versus Shia conflict in the Middle East, the likes of which we wouldn't want to even think about in our nightmares, but would involve the Saudis with Sunni Arab allies fighting against the Iranians, possibly even a nuclear-armed Iran, thanks Obama administration, uh, in the relatively near future. I'm talking maybe five, ten years out. So the Saudis are buying up a lot of military gear. Um, U.S. is number one by far here, so we're going to be spending... Uh, we're going to be spending more money, and we're already number one, but we're going to look at the different aspects where the administration, I, I would think, is going to push Congress. Remember, this is just, you know, always be closing, telling is not selling. The administration is trying to convince the Republicans in Congress, who who seem a bit slothful, a little a little slow in taking action on some of these items. They're starting to seem a little trigger shy on dealing with the Obamacare legal monstrosity. They seem to be withholding a little bit. I know they're saying, oh, no, we've got a plan. We've got a plan. It is a fair criticism to point out they've had years to plan. Did they really never think they were going to be in the majority again? Is that are are the to borrow from last night with the Oscars? Are the Republicans in Congress basically the Oscar award winner who gets up there and had so little expectation of winning that his speech or her speech is, I just want to say thank you to the Academy and and my friends and family. Bye. I mean, is that really where we are here? The Republicans, what do we pay them for in Congress? They should be taking action. They, They shouldn't be selling policy to the American people. They should be ready to enact policy. Why does the GOP have a platform? Why have we had Donald Trump out there pushing for these issues from the beginning of the primary race all the way through to the defeat of Hillary Clinton to now his time in office? What have we been waiting all this time for? I have yet to see it. Trump is pushing for a certain budget. As you know, go back and look at the Obama administration, Obama's budget was just, it was just craziness. It was so much spending and nobody was ever going to go for it. It's really a means of establishing policy priorities and setting up an ideological blueprint for the rest of the party. And that's what this is from Trump on military spending. The president still at this point is not in charge of uh, budgetary matters. It's really the last place it seems there's a clear delineation between the executive branch and the legislative branch, power of the purse, because the executive branch in recent years has been usurping so much of a legislative prerogative, i.e. the president's been saying, we're just going to do this, we're going to treat it like a law, and we're not going to worry about what Congress thinks. Or to borrow from Obama, got a pen and a phone, we're going to do stuff. Congress won't act. So that's what he was saying. And Trump's executive orders, I find to be fully within his authority as a as an executive, as the chief executive, uh, as the commander in chief. Obama, I believe, just decided to legislate from the White House, which is not the way it's supposed to go on some issues. I'm not going to overstate it and say on everything, but on some issues. So back to this budget, what's really going to uh, rattle the cages of the bureaucracy, and as we know, the bureaucracy is already waging something of a a stealth insurgency against this Trump White House, not all of it, but some of it, not everyone in the bureaucracy, but enough to be causing problems, enough that there are 
continued concerns about leaks, leaks both of classified information and also the dishonest and uh, and really underhanded leaks from people who are trusted with information, even if it's not classified, to the press with the hopes of undermining an administration. In many cases, keep in mind, the people that are running and telling their favorite left-wing outlet, whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, running to tell about something that may be embarrassing or maybe a difficulty the administration is facing, there are people in that room or there were people in that meeting that trusted that person to do not to not do that, and they're doing it anyway. So we get into some of the concerns we have over leaks and everything else that's happening right now with this White House. But here's where the political fight is really going to heat up uh, if this budget does become a path forward or if the priorities here do become the priorities of the Congress and the Congress acts. Trump is acting here. What the best that he can do is to sell to the American people these ideas, these policies, and then have the Congress follow up and push them to action. But they're the ones that are going to have to sign on the dotted line. The Republican-led Congress is going to have to do this. And for the budget, they may need some Democrats to go along on this, too. And I wonder, I wonder if there'll be some who are up in the next cycle who can be brought along to the GOP side. The way this Trump budget has been set up, you have $54 billion more for defense and $54 billion less for a number of federal agencies, most notably Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, and the State Department. It's funny that he picks those two and that those are places where there's already an expectation of cuts. I would think it is you are you'd be hard-pressed to find two more obvious, established, intransigent, surly repositories of left-wing progressive bureaucrats than the EPA and the State Department. Now, I have personal experience as a former CIA officer dealing with some of the federal agencies. I knew a lot of people at state. Um, I knew a lot of people that were, well, let's just say their politics were not quite Che Guevara, but they weren't that far off either at the State Department. You get a lot of progressive Bernie Sanders voters at state. And the EPA, I can only imagine most of the people there think that they're part of some great crusade to uh, hobble the economy and save the world, those two things go hand in hand, by pursuing climate change as though it is an existential threat to us. So anything that is anything that is going to do even a little bit to slow down climate change is justifiable because it's existential. They are Bruce Willis and his deep core drilling team on the meteor heading towards Earth. The meteor is climate change, and if they have to detonate a nuke up there and take out everybody, they're going to do it, right? Bruce Willis style, um, if you remember that movie, Armageddon. Very entertaining, very silly movie. But nonetheless, the EPA and the State Department are full of anti-Trump progressives. Not everybody there. I mean, look, there are, I, there are former, there are red-blooded, butt-kicking former Marines who go on to work at the State Department. I mean, I, you know, let's, when, I, when I'm painting with it as a generalization, but I'm by no means impugning everybody who works in any of these bureaucracies. I'm sure there are some, I'm sure there are some Reaganite, uh, Reaganite EPA employees who are ready to throw some Chuck Norris-style roundhouses at the bureaucracy themselves. I, I believe that is there for sure. But generally speaking, 
those are going to be agencies where their main uh, agenda items, at least up to this point, based on the Obama administration, would have been a diplomacy in the case of state that is constantly balancing the interests of foreign countries with the United States with an eye to making up for past U.S. ills, making us seem less bellicose, taking the perspective of, you know, we want the world to love us more. You know, the world should love us. We don't. We shouldn't have to try to make the world love us more. Any rational, sane country should be like, America, thanks. Thanks for your blue water navy that keeps the sea lanes open, which is essential to global trade. Thanks for being there in the event of some true geopolitical catastrophe, whether it's a tsunami, a massive earthquake, or yes, the invasion of a smaller country by a larger bullying country. It's good to know that maybe America won't deal with every problem, but at least there's some hope that someone somewhere will send in the 101st Airborne or a Marine Expeditionary Force and take out the bad guys. Without America, that's a, that's a, a pipe dream. At least there's a hope that we can set things right whether on the battlefield or in the face of a disaster, whatever the case may be. Never mind all of our technological contributions to the world, all of the life-saving drugs we put out on the market. I mean, I could sit here all day and talk about America, number one, no question. But the idea that we have to go out there and sell the world on why they like us, I don't think so. The world should like us. I mean, we shouldn't, I'm not saying be a swaggering, arrogant jerk about it, but we don't need to go around on a bowing tour. How about that? No more bowing tours for America. We've already seen what that did. Not useful, not helpful, and honestly, as a representative of America, you should never be degrading the American people abroad. This is a difference between the previous administration and this one. And then with the EPA, yeah, we want clean water. We don't want toxic waste dumps. But we also don't want people pretending that by monitoring CO2 levels in the air, they're saving the planet. Sorry, not buying it. All right, we got a ton of show, 844-900-2825. Team Buck, we will be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Buck Sexton here. I just want to give you a little reminder of some of the great work that the Environmental Protection Agency depicted quite well, quite accurately, in the fantastic movie I've mentioned many times already in the show, Ghostbusters. Walter Peck of the EPA is the bad guy. And the EPA, which I know has people that do important work. There are things the EPA needs to do. Make sure that no one's dumping horrible things in rivers. And that's what they always talk about. And then you find out that it's all a big climate change, uh, a big climate change catastrophist collection. And they are spending a lot of money on PR as well. Let me just give you what the EPA also does. This is a story back from 2014 up on Fox News. The a Wyoming welder. Now, he's a welder in Wyoming. I'm assuming that he's not. You know, he's not one of Warren Buffett's buddies and and has an enormous, an enormous uh, stock portfolio. He's a guy who's a welder. He was facing $75,000 a day from the EPA, from a federal, a federal regulatory body, because he had a pond on his property. The EPA was threatening him with $75,000 a day, and he said he wouldn't pay them a dime, but under the Clean Water Act, building a dam, this is from Fox, on a creek without a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers opens you up to fines. Now, it would be one thing if the fine were like 100 bucks and it was, hey, don't do that. 75 Gs a day. How many of you could handle $75,000 a day for a pond on your property? Keep in mind. So you dam a stream 
You have a nice little pond now. Kids can go play, you know, quack, quack, duckies and whatever else you got down there. Maybe go. I remember I used to go and try to catch frogs when I would visit friends that had ponds. They were slippery. It's difficult little frogs. Frog legs are delicious. Les le grenouilles, fantastic. I'm a big fan. Um, nonetheless, $75,000 a day from the EPA. That was what he was facing for uh, building a on his own property. And that's what the federal government thinks is a good usage of resources. Um, you get into the EPA's budget and personnel, and they've got a little over 15,000 employees and a budget of about $8 billion. So there's not a tremendous savings to be had here. Uh, there's not a tremendous savings on this, but it's sending a message, isn't it? A message about priorities. We'll see what the Congress does. I don't know. Maybe they'll wimp out a little bit. Maybe they won't go forward with this Trump uh, this Trump proposal of $54 billion more for DOD and $54 billion less for the various regulatory agencies. It's an increase of almost 10% in the U.S. military's budget. Trump says, by the way, uh, that it's because we don't win anymore. That was his discussion of it from earlier today. Play clip three, please. Winning wars. We have to win. We have to start winning wars again. I have to say, when I was young in high school, in college, everybody used to say, we never lost a war. We never lost a war. You remember. Some of you are right there with me, and you remember, we never lost a war. America never lost. And now, we never win a war. We never win. And we don't fight to win. We don't fight to win. So we either got to win or don't fight it at all. But where disagree. we are, 17 oh, years, sorry. Go ahead. almost 17 years of fighting in the Middle East. Okay. I would disagree with the president on a few points here. Remember, I hope he is successful, but I don't agree with him on everything. In fact, I disagree with him on a fair, fair number of things outside of just his rhetoric and and, and uh, his idiosyncratic approach to many different issues. I, I believe that the United States military and I, this is near and dear to my heart. I served in Iraq with the CIA, not with the military, uh, but was close to and assisting and helping the warfighter in Iraq. Uh, getting outside the wire myself um, on numerous occasions, and you can imagine. Now, one day, I wish I could tell you more about some of the details of my experiences there. I'd have to get some of it uh, cleared by Langley, but nonetheless, we defeated our forces, defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq, and at the end of the Bush administration, we handed over to the Obama administration a stable Iraq where the insurgency had been defeated. Now, Obama made some choices that then led to a resurgence in that insurgency, including the Islamic State's seizure of a third of Iraq and a big piece of Syria. Um, but that is not the United States military not winning. That is bad policymaker decision, uh, decisions under the Obama administration. But we have to look at this very closely because you've got Trump on the one hand saying that we shouldn't spend all this time and money fighting wars in the Middle East. He's also asking for an increase in the military budget. We have to see where that money is going and what the plans are here. So there's some details we worked out. Got an expert on all that. He's going to join us in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton with America Now continues. Stay right where you are. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Buck Sexton back with you all now, 
Also, if you have not already and you are listening, please, when you go on iTunes, you're on your computer or your smartphone, type in Buck Sexton in the search field. It'll pop up with Buck Sexton with America Now. Click subscribe. Those numbers are shooting up, and I really appreciate that. It's uh, great for the team, and uh, thank you for that. So please also tell friends about it. Let's talk more about the budget that Trump wants the Congress to go forth with, go forward with. We're joined by Dakota Wood. He's a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He also served for two decades in the United States Marine Corps. Dakota, thank you so much for giving us your time. Hey, Buck, it's good to be with you. Thanks. Let's uh, start with Trump's comment earlier today that this will be a public safety and national security budget to rebuild our depleted military, uh, military play clip two. This budget will be a public safety and national security budget, very much based on those two, with plenty of other things, but very strong. And it will include a historic increase in defense spending to rebuild the depleted military of the United States of America at a time we most need it. And you'll be hearing about that tomorrow night in great detail. This is a landmark event, a message to the world in these dangerous times of American strength, security, and resolve. Dakota, what, what do you think about Trump's general approach that he's, he's making here on the budget? And you have a piece on Heritage.org, military expansion goals, big, modern, ready. Where do we, he says depleted military, where do we need to put more money? What needs fixing? Well, right up front, it's a readiness. If you have a small force, it has to be ready if called upon to act in defense of the country. After you get the readiness piece fixed, uh, then you can start expanding, you know, in size and the capacity to do, to, to do more than one thing. And, and it, it, uh, it's not well um, advertised that the smallness of the military relative to what it's called upon to do actually worsens its readiness problem because you only have a few you know, assets out there or people or units and they get used up all the time instead of having a little bit of, uh, of, of downtime to train uh, refit, repair things, and then go back into the fray. So I think this focus on readiness and then after that, modernization, you know, new things, replacing old worn-out stuff is absolutely the right approach. Now, what are some of the specific areas, though, if you could if you could uh, just help us sure. hone in here on, are, are we talking about, uh, you, know, w- you know, we're talking about re- retention and recruitment of personnel overall, upping some of those numbers? Are we talking about uh, replacing, you know, old A-10s or F-15s? Are we talking about buying more F-35s? What needs to happen here to get us to a place where, as, you know, Trump would put it, the, you know, how do we fix the depleted military into a, all right, we're where we want to be? Right. So right now it's too small, and there hasn't been sufficient funding to keep it well-maintained. So when we talk about readiness in the near term, you know, today, it's do the pilots have enough gasoline for their planes, uh, jet fuel to, to get flight hours to maintain competence. Can you take artillery units to the field and have them fire their artillery pieces enough to remain competent? You know, same thing with tanks, with infantrymen, all the things that they need to do on a regular basis to stay practiced and certified, they haven't been able to do. So as an example, in, 20, in 2012, the active duty army had 45 brigade combat teams Today, they've shrunk down to 32. Of those 32, only about 10 are at acceptable levels of readiness, even with advance notice to go someplace. The chief of staff of the Army recently testified that out of the total 50 brigades across the whole Army, National Guard, Reserve, et cetera, only three 
could actually deploy into a combat zone on short notice. So that's an example. Uh, in the Cold War, pilots would fly about 250 hours a year to maintain skills in high-threat environments, air-to-air combat, dealing with anti-air defense systems and all that. Today, they're at 150 hours. Some are down to 100 hours. You wouldn't even have deployed them 20 years ago. Uh, only about a quarter of Marine Corps aviation is even operating uh, that you can field an actual squadron to get out into the fights. So these small numbers and the poor training of the force as a whole means that the military has to focus on just a very few units that are actually deploy over into the Middle East or the Western Pacific, make sure they're okay, and then everybody else is paying that bill. So uh, this isn't just a few years in the making. It's been about 25 years in the making since the end of the Cold War. A slow decline, decay in equipment readiness and personnel readiness and in numbers. And now we're waking up to the deteriorated state, and it's an eye-popping bill to get it back to where it needs to be. Now, the, the budget that Trump put forward would have us at, what, about $603 billion right. of, of defense spending, $462 billion of non-discretionary, non-defense spending. A lot of people see this, and just as a function of raw numbers, Dakota, I'm, I'm sure you come across this, and pr- people right. probably ask you at you know heritage functions when you guys take questions. Well, we already spend more than the next seven countries combined. We're spending so much on the military. Uh, we, we don't need to spend more there. We should be spending more on schools or infrastructure or whatever. And I'm not trying to make this about d- Democrat or Republican, but these are the oh, things that people yeah. say. Even, even I know Republicans and some libertarians take that point of view. So what do you what's your response to the well, we're already spending more than the next seven combined. You know, when is enough enough? Because I think that that's where a, a fair number of people who are patriots who want the military to be, you know, getting everything that it needs do have a little bit of a, well, should we just look at waste and, and, and abuse in the system or should we really spend more? What do you say to that? No, I'm sympathetic to all those arguments. Uh, we, we've routinely criticized our NATO allies for not spending enough. So if, they, if the target was 2% of gross domestic product GDP and they're spending down at 1.2 or almost half of what they should be spending, then you could say that if they were spending where they should be at, we wouldn't be spending as much as the next 10. It would be as much as the next five. In other words, if people were carrying their share of the burden, <clears throat> then those comparisons would be, would be much different. If you take a historical view, uh, during the Reagan buildup eras, normalized for today in today's dollars, we would be spending over a trillion dollars on defense just because military stuff is so expensive. Jimmy Carter's budget would be about $900 billion today. Senator McCain and uh, Representative Congressman Thornberry, the chairman of this, the Senate and the House Armed Services Committees, say that we should be making this next budget a baseline of $640 billion. So President Trump's um, attempt to get to $603 billion is really a great step in the right direction. But when you compare $600 to $640 to $900 to a trillion, it starts to put things in historical perspective. And again, when we field a force, we've got well-trained and uh, paid troops. Um, the, th- the, the costs of manufacturing modern-day equipment are more expensive here in the United States and in Russia or China. You know, just the conditions are different. So again, it's that slow fade where the American public hasn't been kept aware as to how prices and expenses increase over time. We use precision-guided munitions, you know, GPS and laser-guided bombs instead of dumb bombs. 
fewer bombs to get a target, greater force protection for our guys, but that kind of stuff is expensive, right? So it's just, it's expensive to field a globally deployable military that can do multiple things, you know, more than one thing at a time. And where we've gotten to today is a U.S. military that can handle one major conflict, and that's it. We wouldn't have the ability to respond anywhere else in the world if somebody tried to exploit that absence of U.S. military power defending American interests. Uh, you served a long time in the in the Marine Corps, Dakota. You know, the president has made this comment many times before about how we don't win anymore. I think I know what he is trying to get at, but I also think that it's a little bit too broad of a statement because it's really not military combat that we are not winning. It's trying to get society, specifically in the Middle East, to be functional, democratic, sovereign, and capable of defending themselves, which isn't really a specifically or isn't generally thought right. of as, as a military mission. But I wanted your, I just wanted your response as, as somebody who served and also as a, as a national security yep. expert. What do you think of Trump's we don't win anymore comment? What do you think he's getting at? I think he's reflecting the frustration that all Americans should have in that when we deploy our military to accomplish something, is the outcome satisfying? You know, is it a satisfactory outcome for the expense of lives and treasure that we invest? And so the military can go out. You can have a, you know, a young platoon or a company or a battalion or a fighter, a fighter pilot uh, that's successful in their tactical action, you know, defeating the enemy that he's going up against. And yet if the outcome of that war isn't achieving the objectives for which we went to battle to begin with, then there's something wrong. So it was either a bad policy, it's that the diplomatic and economic levers of power haven't really been applied, or we tried to go in with such a minimal approach that it wasn't sufficient to actually accomplish the task. You know, it's like going to the doctor and he prescribes an antibiotic. If you only take half the dose, even though you take it for a few weeks, it doesn't actually get rid of the sickness. And so his frustration is the policies of the last eight or perhaps 12 or 14 years in places like Afghanistan and Iraq has have not been properly applied so that when we deploy the military, we actually get the win, you know, the sustainable uh, peace or outcome that we're looking for. And I think that's where his anger is at. And he's saying that he's bringing a different approach, that if we're going to send America's sons and daughters into harm's way, we're going to fully equip them. There'll be sufficient combat power and We'll be doing the diplomatic and economic things necessary to get other people uh, to uh, contribute where they should be uh, contributing, and that we will have a, a more successful outcome when all is said and done. Yeah, all I want us to do is take a quick look at what's going on in Afghanistan, and we just have, from a policy perspective, our fingers in the dam there. That's that's just going to come all that's going to come apart unless they come up with a, a real end game. But we got to we got to leave it there for now. Dakota Wood is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also uh, Marine. Dakota, thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for your service. All right, team, we're going to go into a break. When we come back on the other side, uh, we got a lot more to talk about, so stay with me. Trump has gone too far for me. I finally have to break with the administration clearly and firmly I cannot defend this decision. I cannot stand beside him. I do not see any wiggle room on this issue whatsoever. Honestly, I'm quite upset about it. Over the weekend, the president ordered a $54 dry-aged steak, and he ordered it 
well done, and with ketchup. Now, he may be the leader of the free world. He may be a one-man political movement. He may, in fact, do dramatic, wonderful things for the American people. But we do not order our steaks well done, people. We do not do that. We are not cavemen. When you order a steak well done, it means that the temperature outside and in of that wonderful piece of red meat, in this case, dry-aged, I think it was a porterhouse, a dry-aged porterhouse cooked all the way through, it makes me want to cry. You can have a nice crusting on the outside, but you order it medium-rare, that's the sweet spot. Maybe you go medium, and maybe you go rare. Medium-rare is, I think, the most, the, the safest when you order that as a cooking instruction. And ketchup? Not even Bordelaise sauce, sir. Not even Bernays to bring out the fattiness of the meat. You go with well done. I mean, we're, we're, it's like you're trying to have a very expensive goose turd on a plate. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. <sighs> but I digress. I digress. Makes me quite sad. He overcooked the meat. Other than that, I think the president had a good weekend. But we do not, we do not, we absolutely do not order our steaks well done, people. Unless it's been laying out in the sun for four hours, we don't do that. We do not. Greg in Oklahoma, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up? Hey, Buck. I just wanted to call and talk about the Yemen raid and the Navy SEAL's father who came out it was yesterday or the day before uh, talking about how he wanted an investigation into the raid. And uh, I find it uh, not so much perplexing, but interesting that, again, uh, once we have a president with an R next to his name, all of a sudden service members, families who have uh, been killed in action are suddenly on the front pages of websites and on TV, and they're given airtime. Um, while I don't begrudge that, I do question their motives in pushing this narrative that somehow Trump was in charge of this particular mission uh, when it was set up months before his presidency and having faith in uh, General Mattis and others in uh, the national security team. I, I don't understand where this um, attack is coming from and, and what's the reasoning behind going after Trump for uh, this particular loss of life. Well, I I do not want to in any way duck this question. It's an excellent question, Greg. I have a guest who's a friend and former special operations, uh, well, a former operator from within the special operations community who'll be joining later in the show. We're going to talk about the raid and about the politics that I think are going on around this, uh, this service members uh, that was killed in action with his family and and the discussion. So can I can I ask that we put this on? A, can you stay with us through the show here? And can I ask that uh, we're going to be hitting in, in just a couple of hours? But I, I want to wait a little bit because if I get too deep into it now, it's going to be a repeat later. And we've got somebody from in for formerly inside spec ops community joining us. So can we can I just say that we will address your question then? Is that fair? Oh, that's absolutely fair. I was trying to set you up for later in the show. Oh, no, fantastic. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It's a very important topic, and, and we, we absolutely will get to it, and that's going to be coming up around 8.30 Eastern, just so you know. We've got my friend from softrep.com joining, and we're going to be talking to him. He's uh, He was uh, U.S. Special Forces, Green Beret, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about what happened there and also what he thinks is going on with the family. So, Greg in Oklahoma, Shields High, thank you for calling in. Uh, Ed in North Carolina, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm good. All right. Um, you were talking to Dakota a couple of minutes ago about uh, what Trump said about we don't win wars anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Well, I think what, what Trump is really talking about, and Dakota said he went back like 14 years, he's talking about after September 11th and all. But I think what Trump is talking about is goes back even further. It's like Vietnam and maybe Korea. I think anything after like World War II is that when we go into a war, we go in to win it and not without like um, social restraints, shall we say politically correct restraints. Like World War Two, we we bombed cities. Our allies bombed cities, but now we, you know, nowadays we go in with uh, political correctness. And I think what Trump wants to do is to not go into a war unless we're just going to go in and actually forget about the political correctness and do the right thing to win the war. Well, I, there's there's a lot here, right? I mean, there's on the one hand, uh, having having spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan, I can tell you that uh, avoiding Avoiding civilian casualties is a moral imperative. It's also a strategic one because if you're trying to win over the population for a counterinsurgency campaign, you need the population to work with you. In fact, the heart of counterinsurgency, as we learned, and this is part of the Petraeus Doctrine and the way that we turned around what was happening in the Iraq War 2006 to 2008, 2009, uh, was by protecting the population first. That became the strategic imperative. So I think part of the problem here is that there's a lack of an objective put in place and there's a lack of clarity from the policy side, from the former White House and honestly from the White House before that as well. And that's what needs to be addressed. Uh, But you do you're fighting different wars in the Middle East than you did in World War Two on a whole host of levels. Uh, But Ed in North Carolina, thank you for calling. Appreciate it. Uh, Team, we've got a lot more coming up here, including a discussion of immigration. Be right back. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's why why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. We are entering a new era of immigration enforcement, my friends. The previous administration's policies of catch and release, of allowing illegal immigrants to go free in the country while awaiting court dates for which they would never show up, of trying to change the numbers to make it look like we were deporting more people than we actually were, by changing the definitions of what counts as deported, that's going to stop, it seems. And we have an administration with Trump in charge that will have a very different approach to these things. What's that going to look like on the legal side? We're joined by Seth Berenswag. He's an attorney and managing partner at Berenswag Leonard, and he's at Seth Berenswag on Twitter. Seth, thank you for calling in. Always a pleasure. Let's start with the immigration executive order. It is expected to come down this Wednesday. Uh, You know how this goes on the legal side of things. Do you think this one will stand muster in the courts? This one will actually, uh, well, will this one be allowed to... Uh, stand without judicial uh, overrule? Well, I I think it'll take a little bit of a judicial challenge because we know that uh, this is a a very controversial issue and some folks will try to tee up litigation, but especially in terms of this new order uh, that'll come out, which I think will be a a leaner uh, version of the first one. At the end of the day, I think that the president wins because I do think that he has the legal authority to take the action that he's taking. Now, we also have these uh, this piece in the New York Times, and it's really part of a much larger narrative that the media seems to be putting out there right now, 
that there is a widespread crackdown on illegal immigrants already in effect, that immigration and customs enforcement officers are being brutes. They're heartless in how they are doing this. They're kicking in doors early in the morning, arresting. And I'm not exaggerating. This was in a big New York Times piece called Immigration Agents Discover New Freedom to Deport Under Trump. They talk about how scary the vans are to immigrant communities that Immigration and Customs Enforcement drive around in. They even discuss how there are there are morning raids that terrify small children. And I want to point out that anytime law enforcement is going to arrest somebody at their home, they tend to do it in the morning the second they step out of their front door. But they act like this is specific for immigration enforcement. This is meant to be terrifying. And if anyone thinks that I'm exaggerating, you've got Tom Ricks, a well-known New York Times columnist or a, a writer for the New York Times, he writes, are U.S. immigration centers the next Abu Ghraib? I mean, come on. What is going on here? Well, I think that, you know, there, there are some reports that are being uh, blasted through the media that are less than entirely accurate. And there are some other folks that really just have to acclimate to the fact that we have a complete and total change, not necessarily of the law, but really in terms of enforcement. A lot of these laws that are at issue have been on the books uh, for a long time. And in fact, a lot of the reason and the authority why uh, the current administration has the ability to uh, reissue this immigration order is because President Trump is really just applying uh, immigration law that was enacted during the Obama administration. It was during the Obama years um, that Congress enacted a statute uh, really laying out the groundwork um, that helps to define what these seven nations are that are going to be the subject of this executive order. Um, uh, President Trump didn't create that law, um, but he has the authority to act under the Immigration Code. He has the authority to act under Article 2 of the United States Constitution. So really, when there's a reporting that things have changed, they really haven't changed as much in the law as much as they've changed in terms of the enforcement of the law. And do you think that the uh, the enforcement of the law is going to meet with a lot of particular legal challenges now? Or this is what I I wonder because people have gotten used to a, a sense of lawlessness here in that there's all this stuff that we know is on the books but hadn't been enforced under years of Obama. That was the guidance for the Department of Justice for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. There had these policies that were just the way it was done, even though it wasn't the way it was written by Congress. So does that mean that it will be, you know, is there any um, ability for somebody to say, well, you can't do this to me now because even though that's what the law says, I have an expectation of how it's been in the past. Do you see any any ways that the ACLU and all these other groups that are in a frenzy right now will be able to challenge this new enforcement crackdown? You know, it's interesting because although I think the answer to that clearly is no, um, when you have people that are trying to micromanage and micro-litigate the president's uh, immigration authority, um, you do see people that are, are, are trying to fight back. And you'll see that, I'm sure, over the next couple of weeks when the new order is released on Wednesday. Look, if you take a look at what happened in the Ninth Circuit litigation in the first version of this uh, travel order, it was really interesting to see what was going on. You know, you talk about the interesting issue of people not accepting it and saying that they would like it to be, to be the way things were. There were declarations that were signed by people from the prior administration into the court trying to micro-argue with the president to say that they wouldn't do it that way. Um, John Kerry signed a statement that was filed with the court saying that he doesn't think this is the right way to go. Look, if the courts and the former administration officials are going to be throwing darts and have the ability to litigate against the president and try to get injunctions against him every time that he tries to uh, manage immigration issues that he's legally authorized to do, then this whole thing is going to become a huge mess, which it already has been. 
which is why I think he's taking a little bit more time to trim down this executive order. Um, I think the bottom line is we'll see some challenges, but at the end of the day, I think that the president prevails. Do you think it's fair to say, and this is how I see it, although I'm, I don't work inside the legal system and, and don't have a law degree, uh, but it seems to me that a difference between what we saw under the Obama administration and what we see so far under the Trump administration is that under Obama, under Obama's time in office, there were legal challenges, but the legal challenges were you don't as president. I'm talking about on the big issues like his uh, his enforcement. Uh, what was it? Executive guidance. I don't think it was technically an executive or executive action, uh, but it was. We don't think that you even have the authority as president to do this. Under Trump, it seems that there are people that want to use the judiciary to just say, we don't think this is a good idea. Maybe you're allowed to do this technically, but we don't think you should do it because it's bad. And so we're going to challenge you in court. And even if we're going to lose in the end, the challenge itself becomes uh, becomes sort of the, the, the obstacle or, you know, the, the process is the punishment for the administration. Sure, absolutely. And I think really what you're also talking about is is a question that really cuts to the heart of what in the Constitution we call separation of powers. Who has the authority ultimately to determine immigration policy? Um, is it the courts uh, that are able to come in and, and, and ask these factual questions or to try to question the wisdom of it? Clearly not. The president has the authority um, through this executive order to be able to uh, apply the law as it is right now. Now, of course, the prior administration uh, handled executive orders a lot differently, and then that was a huge controversy as well. Um, but, but ultimately, it really is a question of whether there's authority to do it, and will there be a court uh, that will ultimately not back up the president? Look, even if there's a split in the circuits, and the First Circuit and the Ninth Circuit starts to split on this, by the time Justice Gorsuch is a um, uh, placed into the United States Supreme Court, even if it goes all the way to the top, the president is going to get at least a 4-3 vote in his favor. So whether it's the short term or the long term, the president is going to win this big legal battle. Uh, can we keep you through the break to talk about the bathroom battle on the other side? Because I want to give that enough time to get into it a bit. Do you have a few minutes? It would be my pleasure. Seth Berenswag is an attorney and managing partner at Berenswag Leonard. He'll be back with us. We'll talk about transgender rights and the bathroom battle in just a few minutes. Welcome back, Team Buck. We were talking to Seth Baronsweg, attorney and managing partner at Baronsweg Leonard, about uh, immigration before. Now we're going to move to the transgender bathroom fight that's underway right now with the government. Uh, first, uh, tell me, where is this? This is heading to the Supreme Court, you think? What's going to happen with this federal guidance that Obama put in place that now Trump has removed, which means that bathroom use policy for transgender students reverts to the states. I assume there's going to be a lot of fights over this. Exactly. There is a Supreme Court argument that's coming up um, this spring. Uh, a student by the name of Gavin Grimm, a 17-year-old transgender student from Virginia, uh, is litigating this, and it'll be coming up in the Supreme Court shortly. The backdrop of this heated up uh, not long ago, just a couple of months ago, when the Obama administration, through its federal agencies, put out and really laid down uh, the law to, uh, among other places, school districts saying, look, we're going to apply certain aspects of the Civil Rights Act to now say that gender discrimination, uh, as far as we're concerned, includes gender identity. And therefore, you have to follow uh, our way or the highway, and then you're going to get uh, otherwise in all kinds of trouble. Um, and without getting too wrapped around the legal weeds, they applied it to under Title IX, which applies to schools, in Title I of the Civil Rights Act that applies to employment. So 
this was really an earth-shattering moment. Uh, it's the government telling both employers and schools that um, in one fell swoop, uh, they had to treat gender discrimination to also include gender identity, and, and therefore the bathroom use issue became kind of ensconced in that issue. And then really legally the question became, who has the authority to create that law? Um, and really at the end of the day, the legislatures are the only ones that can legislate. And therefore when the, this president came in, um, he recently said, look, we're going to retract that. We we don't think that's right, and at the end of the day, we're going to let these important and often divisive issues be governed by the states themselves. Seth, let me ask you, in a lot of different contexts, people say that there is a legal test, and, and you have to go. there are certain steps that have to be met to qualify as something or uh, you know, for example, recently in in the Maryland uh, Maryland's Fourth Circuit said, I think quite wrongly, that Heller puts forward a test that says that you know weapons that are weapons of war would not be things you could own under the Second Amendment, and they created a new test for firearms. I think it's wrong, but at least they laid out some specifics here. I one part of this issue, other than the fact that men are men and women are women, male female is gender and biology based, but uh, other than that, very basic argument, but very important one. What qualifies? Are there legal steps that one meets under this federal guidance that Obama put in place to be transgender? Or could you say, I've decided I'm transgender. I want to use the lock, women's locker room today uh, just because, I mean, you know, is there a way they challenge this or do you have to meet certain steps? Because otherwise it seems like if it's just based on psychology and based on a position, well, one should be able to pick and choose that position as they see fit. In fact, they say it's, the progressives say it's a spectrum and there are 37 different genders. So I would assume that you could be trans for a little while and then not trans. Or are there, or are there legal steps? Is there a test in place? Well, sure. And, and, and that's really the problem because, you know, it's such a complicated issue, and it's being treated as a complicated issue, um, but really it's ultimately very simple. The Supreme Court has said more than once that they consider gender to be what they call an immutable characteristic. In other words, this is what you're born with. And this what, a, what a radical notion. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. And, and then subsequently, when the United States Congress created statutes that wanted to just have um, the, the, the traditional definition of gender discrimination, such, for example, for employment discrimination, then they said that it was based upon gender in that Supreme Court standard. Uh, now, the Obama administration recently came out and said, we're changing that. The problem with that is that that's not what Congress said. And in fact, there have been some instances where when Congress, and again, the only people who can legislate and create laws are the legislatures, which was one of the controversies of the Obama administration, um, that, that was the problem. When Congress wanted to and intended to create a gender identification, um, or self-identification as an issue, it put it in a law. And these pieces that you and I are talking about under Title I and Title IX of the Civil Rights Act, Congress declined to do so. They were uh, encouraged a number of times over the years to include gender identification, and they declined. Afterwards, the president basically made the law himself. Now, I know it's controversial, and people can have uh, moral arguments all day about it, and that's to be respected. But ultimately, it's really up to the legislature to legislate. And when you say, what's the, the legal standard? It's the statute. And these statutes don't include gender identification as part of the litmus test. If there's going to be a change, it's got to be from the legislature legislatures on the state or the federal level. So the Supreme Court's going to take up this issue. Do you are you one who do you stay away from making prognostications about how the Supremes will go on this? 
Well, it's a great question, and I think it really all depends upon when Justice Gorsuch gets brought into the Supreme Court. I think that his um, that process gets underway in about a month, uh, and I anticipate that he'll probably uh, be on the court by then. So I think it'll be a close call, um, but ultimately I believe that the Supreme Court will conclude um, that this just cannot be created um, out of whole cloth. It has to be created legislatively, and therefore I think it will support the school. Um, and, and look, if Virginia wants to change the standard or if Congress wants to create new rights, then they should do, and then let's have a social debate. But other than that, it again, just like the first case we talked about, it's a separation of powers issue. Seth Baronsweg is an attorney and managing partner at Baronsweg Leonard. He is at Seth Baronsweg on Twitter. Sir, thank you so much for calling in. Great to have you. My pleasure. I just want to revisit something for a minute here, team, because I was talking about the EPA before, and I mentioned. And I, I hate when I when I miss a, a big target, you know, when I'm when I'm above when I'm above the target and I'm dropping bombs and I and I and I miss the munitions factory. If I can get another another swoop around, another chance at it, I want to take it. And so to consider this a swoop around. Maybe we could get like a cool sound effect for that when Buck returns to something that he had talked about earlier in the show. And pardon the third person speaking there. It just happens when you're on radio sometimes. So the uh, city of Durango, I was talking about the EPA and how its mission is to regulate CO2, which is what you breathe out and what plants take in during the process of photosynthesis, photosynthesis and then they uh, release oxygen as their byproduct, and we breathe in oxygen. Isn't that nice? It's the circle of life. So I guess the circle of life is a little different than that, but you know what I mean. Actually, no, that's a circle of life. It's all, it's all, you know, it's all the same. So EPA spill. the EPA spill that happened, though, is a reminder of not only does government uh, take on politicized missions, the federal bureaucracy takes on missions for itself that are clearly um, at odds with commerce, at odds with prosperity for the American people, and are just ideologically driven, even though the executive branch is supposed to be the implementing arm of what is established policy by the White House based on statute and the Constitution. That's the way it's supposed to go. They're the implementors, but what we see more and more is the regulatory state are rulemaking bodies unto themselves. They're legislative bodies unto themselves. So the EPA can come up with a—within the EPA, they'll be given the authority to come up with a rule, and then that rule has real consequences for people. It's not a congressionally legislated action, so you have no accountability here. What do you do? You complain to the EPA? They're like, they're like the State Department. We were here before the president. We'll be here after the president. They don't care. At least that was their attitude. It may change a little bit now. But as I was talking about the core mission of def- of protecting the environment, which, of course, states could do, uh, call me crazy. You know, I don't think the state of Louisiana, the state of Idaho, the state of Florida, name a state. I don't think a state wants to pollute its water and let its children uh, suffer and get you know fatal diseases or lifelong chronic conditions because of dirty water. I don't think state governments any more than the federal government want to be in that business. And in fact, I'd offer to you that state governments probably would be in a better position to know what is good land usage and how to protect their own waterways because, yeah, that's right, we have a, the system of federalism and they're closer to the issue and there's a greater understanding as well as uh, a greater importance put on local commerce as well as environmental defense so all of those things anyway epa based out of washington dc if you watch any movies in recent years of course epa is always the good guy except for ghostbusters what was that movie with uh, john travolta i can't remember what it was now do you know the john travolta movie i don't remember but it was 
he's like, there's a lake that keeps catching on fire because of the to- toxic waste. And he's like, I'm going to stop this. And everyone's like, yay. It's not really the way EPA works. But I digress. All right. Um, the city of Durango and La Plata, don't forget the EPA spill that happened there. Meaning the EPA actually spilled the stuff. This was back in 2015, not long ago. Uh, in Colorado, the EPA was trying to clean up, uh, what was it, clean up a mine. And they messed up. And a 1 million gallons of wastewater spilled out of the abandoned mine area in the southern part of the state. Uh, So they turned an otherwise beautiful and bucolic river orange with wastewater. They turned the river orange. It's almost biblical sounding. And then the river doth turn orange because the, you know, but no, this was just they dumped a bunch of stuff, a bunch of junk into the river. Granted, it was an accident, but... This is the agency that's supposed to protect rivers. So once again, not only do they take an overly broad mission and politicize that mission with all that climate change hysteria, but because it's the federal government and because they're acting often outside their core competency, they make mistakes. And in the case of the EPA, that mistake includes when they're supposed to be protecting uh, an area uh, from waste and from destruction, They, in fact, are the ones that dump a million gallons of wastewater into a river and turn it orange. Pretty bad stuff. Let's talk a bit about Russia and the White House crackdown on leaks coming up in just a few. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. The Democrats realize they're in rough shape, you could say. They have lost a tremendous amount of seats in the House and the Senate over the course of Obama's presidency. They have lost state houses. They have lost governorships. And currently, they are a true opposition party. They are not in charge of the House. They do not have a majority in the Senate. And of course, as we all know, they don't have the White House, despite all of the brilliance and charm of Hillary on the campaign trail. I just love the American people. As long as they're rich enough to pay $250,000 for a speech. Oh, we were all saved from that, at least. Don't have to listen to Hillary Clinton out there on the stump anymore. Although, I did read a piece today that there is some possibility, it is considered to be possible, uh, that Chelsea Clinton, her daughter may decide to run for Congress out in Westchester in the very, very fancy uh, enclave uh, around Chappaqua. Oh, hello, Chappaqua. Oh, did you, did you have your servants bring out the tea, Chappaqua? Oh, no, the servants not allowed to be seen in public on days like today. They, they stay out of sight in Chappaqua. So she might run, Chelsea Clinton might run for the Congress. This is just, this is just being put out there right now, mate. And if that gets closer, I'm going to have a lot to say about that because, ooh, political dynasties need to be— and this is true on the Republican side, too. I, I am a bipartisan—I uh, shouldn't say haters. I don't hate it, but uh, I am a bipartisan critic of the notion that because Mumsy or Daddy—usually it's Daddy, but can be Mumsy, like Hillary Clinton—is uh, a famous political name that the progeny of said famous political person should be— given higher office just because uh yeah 
not not going to go along with that. Uh, but the Democratic Party is in trouble. They, they don't have a clear and obvious leader right now. You have a few people who are trying to grab the mantle of the progressive left. I still don't think that that is a winning national strategy. So whether it's Bernie Sanders or uh, Focahontas Warren, uh, one or the other, it doesn't matter. I don't think that that's, that's an important part of the Democrats' base. But I don't believe either one of them would win a national election. We'll see. I, I could be wrong. But my impression of it is that neither one of them. America's not quite ready for an open socialist yet. And we need to have, if you have catastrophic failure of the Trump administration, which I do not expect will happen, but of course it's a possibility. If you have catastrophic failure of the Trump administration, maybe then there'll be some leftist surge in this country and a Democrat socialist would have a real a real run at office. But I think enough Americans are still aware of socialism. And if they're not of the the problems that socialism poses, really the evils that socialism creates. And if they're not, we can just always run a little Google search on Venezuela, which is really actually more a question of state control of the economy than even classic uh, socialism. I mean, there you have a kleptocracy with Maduro government making sure that the people at the very top, his cronies, are well taken care of, and there was redistribution of wealth to the bottom and the seizure of... So, I mean, there is some classic socialist stuff here. Remember, socialism really is government control of the means of production and the distribution of the fruits of that production. And now in Venezuela, that's gone so poorly that they have an average of almost 20 pounds of weight loss for a population that largely cannot afford physically, healthfully, to lose that amount of weight... Um, because they're losing it because they don't have enough food. They A year ago were having shortages of water, uh, clean water and toilet paper. Now they just don't have food. But the government's there to tell people, well, you need to sell. If you're going to sell appliances, you need to sell them for this amount of money. And, of course, the people, uh, uh, the, the government telling these businesses that doesn't take into account that if they do that, they're losing money on those appliances, which means they go out of business. But it sounds good, and then Maduro can go on TV and talk about how he's for the people and all the rest of it. So Democrat socialists or strongman socialists or anything socialist, I think, is going to have a tough time, uh, would have a tough time winning the presidency at this point. But if they can help push Trump into a failed presidency status, then you don't know. Then, it's, then it, may, it may be possible. It's very, we'll have to see where we are. I'm still a little shocked that Bernie Sanders got as much support as he did in the last election. A socialist who owns three houses, you would think, would be open to charges of hypocrisy. But there is something of the earnest professor and grandpa all rolled into one with Sanders that created a sense of appeal among many people who are just looking for something different and that would be a change in the way our government functions. Isn't it fascinating that Obama promised change, but in so many ways the government just continued only bigger and with uh, even worse flaws than it had previously, and just doubling down on a lot of the problems that government was causing. So it was changing in that it was getting worse, but it wasn't change as in altering a lot of the main government processes and how it goes about its business. Okay, back to the Democratic Party and the shape that it's in, actually. We have uh, Robert Reich, um, who is called upon for his commentary, even though he says some pretty Pretty foolish things sometimes, uh, but I don't know. He seems like a nice enough guy, I guess, for a, a progressive. He was on ABC's This Week. He was Clinton's former Secretary of Labor, 
and he called it out on the Democrats here. Play it. Right now, there is a disconnect, George, between a rather sclerotic Democratic apparatus, which is in complete disarray. I mean, the Democratic Party has not been in this bad shape since perhaps the 1920s, and a huge uprising at the grassroots, mostly against Trump. Now, how can Tom Perez, can he actually utilize that, turn the Democratic Party from a vast fundraising machine into a movement? Hasn't been done before very easily. Can this individual, Tom Perez, who's now the DNC chairman, Democratic Party chairman, uh, is he able to create a movement out of this? You'd have to say, a movement for what? This is a fascinating philosophical question now facing the Democratic Party. Other than bigger government and other than the redistribution of wealth, what does the Democrat Party stand for? Uh, When you look at anything beyond that, it, it often is just whatever is oppositional to the Republicans From a a social standpoint, uh, it's trying to kick at the load-bearing walls of Western civilization. From a national security standpoint, it tries to undermine many of our uh, natural reaction reaction and tendencies to threats like from radical Islam as well as others by saying that we're the cause of these problems. If we took a different approach— this wouldn't be so bad if we went around and bowed, if we apologized to the Muslim world, if we uh, extended a hand. Yeah, that's right. They did this. Don't forget with all the Russia hawks now, if we only were more flexible towards Medvedev, as, as Obama said, and were a little bit warmer and fuzzier towards Putin, maybe we could find more common ground with them. And that's the way the Democrats approach national security, uh, at least philosophically. On terrorism, they realize that that's a huge liability for them if they get hit at home. And so they continued many of the policies of the Bush administration. Obama continued many of them. He inherited a whole counterterrorism apparatus that he continued to use largely because he had to, because he knew that what a lot of what Bush was doing was right. And the expansion of the drone campaign, one of the most underreported aspects, I think, of the Obama presidency is something we'll revisit in the third hour today when we talk about the raid, the special operations raid in Yemen that is now getting so much attention in the media. But back to the Democratic Party and what it's trying to do. They say, let's create a movement. The problem the Democrats have is that what they do and what they say are not the same thing. And the Democratic Party ultimately offers up more government and more redistribution of wealth. And that's not really the American way, for lack of a better way of putting it, That's not how the American people see themselves. We're not a country where we, in the aggregate, still want to have a larger government that's taking more stuff and giving that stuff to other people because government will do a better job allocating those resources that are yours, that they're taking from you by force, I might add, than you will do. Most Americans don't buy into that. There there is still this large segment of the U.S. population that believes in American dream that does not revolve around what was the name of that uh of that guy who and uh, what was it the pajama boy was getting obamacare oh the life of julia i think it was called the life of it was a woman it just was a a dnc or a democrat ad i forget who put it out where you had this woman who just was a timeline of her life and it was all the places where government's doing stuff for her as though government's going to make you happy as though government's your friend it's going to keep you safe and warm this is a terrible lie 
that the Democratic Party tells to people. It is uninspiring and it is also untrue. Those are its main weaknesses. And when you look at it that way, you have a total and clear understanding of why it is the Democratic Party is currently in such disrepair as an institution. And to offer up Tom Perez, oh, let's talk about what his goals are. We have a clip of him saying what their message is going to be against the Trump administration. Play clip 10. Are you comfortable with the Democrats being known as the party of no now? The, the Democrats are the party of opportunity and inclusion. We are going to communicate our message, whether okay. it's through lawsuits, like the state attorneys general did to stop the Muslim ban, whether okay. it's through actions yesterday at the polls in Delaware and hopefully April in Congressional 6 right here in Georgia. And we're going to communicate that message that we are the party that lifts your wages. We are the party that preserves your health care. We are the party that's going to be fighting for middle class security every right. single day and opportunity for everyone. See, here's the problem with that. The main and I know a lot of you are like, oh, Buck, I wish I could take some swings at that nonsense, too. And, and you can you can call in if you want to. Uh, 844-900-2825. But here's the problem with what Perez just said. First of all, nobody is inspired by we're going to sue a lot. Saying that you're going to be litigious as a means of pushing back against a government agenda is just showing that you're unwilling to even try to find areas. Is there really nothing the Democrat Party and the Republicans can do together to better the lives of Americans? The Democrats say no. And people say, well, that's true of Republicans, true under Obama. That is not true. Obama just refused to listen to anything the Republicans wanted to do. Anything that Republicans wanted was a no. And now with the Republicans in power, Democrats are once again zero sum in their approach to all of this. But so lawsuits are not inspiring. It's hard to build. It's hard to build a political movement um, uh, among or based on. Uh, endless lawsuits against the government, right? I mean, we're not talking about lawsuits against one evil institution or something to bring it down. You know, it's not like suing big tobacco or whatever. Uh, just suing the government to try to uh, gum up the works in the courts, that's not inspiring. But then there's the other part. And this is a big problem the Democrats have, and they don't have an answer for this. He talks about rising incomes. He talks about helping the middle class and keeping health care. We've just had the Democrats running the show for, well, at least uh, four of the last eight years, but we've had a Democrat president for eight years, and his policies, because of what was done in the first two years, are all we've really been through for eight years. The Republicans have been able to do almost nothing for eight years, and the Democrats had their shot, and it was no good. They had their shot, and they blew it. Why would you listen to them now if you're in the middle class? Why would you believe they can change things? What did Obama do for the middle class? What did Obama do for minor, uh, minority communities across the country? Sure, on some political issues, the White House was very quick to either exacerbate fears of unequal treatment, and they had a very politically active uh, civil rights division of the Justice Department out there, always worried about looming racism. But what did he really do for minority communities across the country? It's a question for which I can't think of any good answer, and neither can the Democrats. It's a big problem. 888, oh, sorry, 844-900-844-900-2825. We'll be right back, team. We got Mike in Ohio on the line, WWVA. What's up, Mike? Good evening, Buck. How are you this evening? I'm good. Good evening to you, sir. Hey, I want to uh, chime in on the uh, transgender bathroom issue. Uh, as far as locker rooms are concerned, I mean, I can see the problem. 
But for bathrooms, I mean, if you're um, a male and you're walking into a ladies' room, uh, there's only stalls in there. These are private stalls. And seriously, no one's going to know if you're a male or a female. And the same thing, a female going into a men's room, um, anatomically, they do not have the parts to use a urinal. So if they're going into um, a regular stall, uh, it's... It's a, a moot point. I well, you mean, got a, a couple things here. LGBT. I'm sorry. You want to finish your point? Go ahead. Well, I was saying they keep their LGB on the QT. Who's going to know? Well, first of all, it applies to locker rooms as well as to bathrooms. So any place where there is segregation of the sexes for the purposes of being able to not be exposed to the other sex's private parts and them looking at you while you're changing and, and all the rest of it, that is covered under this policy as well. So it's not just bathrooms, right? It's anything where there is segregation of the sexes and uh, and nakedness, or also known as nudity. Uh, so anywhere where that's happening, that's a part of this. But it also, I think, uh, Mike, you have to keep in mind that for a lot of women, uh, the notion of a man being in the bathroom with them where they are disrobing and doing their stuff as, as ladies uh, is very uh, uncomfortable and, and, in fact, can even, for some of them, uh, create some real anxiety, especially if they've uh, suffered you know, any abuse. I mean, there are, there are real concerns with how comfortable one would be in that situation. Um, and also, you know, keep in mind, I mean, you're assuming that a guy who goes into a ladies' room who says that he's now a lady is transgender— you know, maybe he leaves the door open, right? I mean, maybe, you know, we're creating these separate these separate areas for these activities for the purposes of allowing women and men, but really more for the uh, for women to feel comfortable, right? It's it's about a comfort level issue. And if you have a two hundred pound guy who's got a wig on and has been taking some hormone therapy, who is all of a sudden uh, going into the women's room as there are women in there taking care of their lady things. It may make some of them very uncomfortable. Once you add locker rooms into the situation, though, now you've got guys who are getting fully disrobed, who are anatomically male, and we all know what that means, who are right next to ladies who have no clothing on. So, you know, it's not just a bathroom policy. It's a sex segregation policy. And I would, I mean, just think about it in this context, uh, Mike. I don't, if you have a daughter or a wife or any any female family members uh, do you want them changing next to a 200-pound guy who's totally naked in the bathroom or in the in the locker room? I, I'm I don't know. You tell me, but I would have a problem with that. No, I'm I'm still totally hung up on the image of the 200-pound naked man with the wig. <laughs> well, I mean that's a real that's a real thing that that happens. But thank you, Mike, for calling in. Thank you for calling in from Ohio. Uh, we've also uh, actually no, hold on. I, I want to set up our next segment a little bit. So we're going to talk. Uh, first of all, I, I don't know of anybody else who does a daily, uh, certainly daily national broadcast radio show with experience in a couple of war zones on the counterterrorism side. Uh, so I, I do want to just say, and pardon me for the little self-promotion here, when I talk to you about this special operations Yemen raid coming up here, I, I'm probably only radio host you will hear from who has actually served in the Middle East, served in Iraq, served in Afghanistan, been in some other nasty counterterrorism hotspots, too, that I can't talk about on radio. But I have an understanding of these issues from having worked on them and having been deployed and been weapons trained and qualified and all the rest of it uh, that others do not. Uh, and we also have a friend joining from the special operations community 
to talk about what it sounds like what what happened on this raid and also why it is now being politicized. We will get into that, the Yemen raid, in just a few minutes. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for being here. We're going to get into the Yemen raid a little later on in this hour, by the way. I've got a lot to share with you on that. But first, got to return to a topic that's getting (laughs) all kinds of attention, of course. And that has to do with the Trump-Russia, the Russia connection. We should come up with some cool theme music for this. Um uh, I don't know what it would be, but you know that the the music that they always play in the Hunt for Red October and all it should be like that, like that Russian choral music that's very haunting and and all these voices. Da 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 da. You know how it goes. But the Trump Russia connection gets a lot of attention because it's a, it's a way of saying. And by the way, all these people who were so outraged at anybody who would question. Obama's patriotism are are now a lot of the same people that I see who are quite happy to suggest or even outright state that Donald Trump is a traitor for Russia. And I've, I've gone over this with you before, and we'll try to have on some of the smarter voices that I know out there that have bought into this for whatever reason. I, I think they're I think they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, and I will tell them that. But there are certainly people who are otherwise knowledgeable on national security and intelligence matters who take the perspective that it's just a matter of time before we find these bombshells in the Trump-Russia investigation. I don't see that happening. I think it's greatly exaggerated. I think that this is going to be much, uh, there's going to be a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, to borrow from the bard himself. Booyah, Shakespeare on the Buck Sexton show. It's how we do. Uh, But... You do have people who are who are pushing this story, so I just want to keep us updated on it. You have Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez saying what is obvious, and I've said to you so far as well, you have national security leaks. You have classified information making its way into the media's hands, and yet nothing that is damning in the way that so many suggest will be found about Trump and Russia. So people with access to top secret information, including signals intelligence, including intercepts of conversations between high-level Russian and American officials. There are people who have that information and they'll share it with the media, but they still, they still have nothing on the Trump-Russia tie. And I'm waiting. And I know we're being told now they have to investigate, but the investigation is just an excuse for some people to talk about this and surmise, come to conclusions before there's any evidence to support those conclusions. That's what this is really all about. That's what they're doing. Um, And Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez is out there fighting the fight on this one. He says, first of all, where is the evidence? Clip eight. Can you say categorically that there were no contacts whatsoever between any officials affiliated with the Russian government and the Trump campaign? Yeah, not, not that I'm aware of. We still have not seen any evidence of, of anyone that's that from the Trump campaign or any other campaign, for that matter, 
uh, that's communicated with the Russian government. And also, why would you agree to be uh, to talk to reporters at the behest of the White House, knowing that you're still looking into this matter? Yeah, so that, uh, that story was a little odd, I thought, um, because if you asked me to contact uh, the White House and said, hey, could you set me up with somebody at DOD or the intelligence agencies, I would say sure. So uh, it was a, kind of an odd story, I thought. Is it compromised in any way? Is the, the fact that you have already made this uh, determination? How is, it, well, I, how is it compromised if I'm trying to be transparent with the press and if the White House asks me to talk to a reporter, which by the way, it was one reporter, uh, I don't know if the White House asked me to talk to you, would you think that that would be okay? This is very okay? important, team, so I want to jump in here. Very important. They're calling for an investigation. They are claiming to know what the outcome will be. Trump is a traitor. And they're also telling you, as they're calling for an investigation, that the investigation is tainted. Now, that's because at the end of this, they're not going to find what they want to find, which is damning evidence of Trump campaign and maybe even administration collusion in a way that is unethical and or illegal with the Kremlin. But notice how they play the game. We need an investigation. We need an investigation. But we all know the investigation is tainted. We need an investigation, but we all know that the fix is already in. So they say that they want to find the facts. They tell us before the facts are found what they think the facts will be and act as if that's already been decided. And they also say that, well, we're not going to get those facts because this is going to be a, a sham. This is going to be a fake. The investigation is not going to happen and, and be conducted the way that it should. Well, isn't that convenient? Well, isn't that special? Isn't that quite easy for them now? So you have Nunez out there saying, look, we haven't seen any evidence. They're trying to trap him, I should note, with these questions about any contacts between Russian officials and the Trump campaign. Just wait. You're, they're going to get on record some members of Congress or some spokesperson for the Trump administration. They're going to get him on record saying no contact with the Russians. And then they'll find that there was some contact with the Russians, but the kind of contact that an or a, a would-be administration, a campaign would, would have, with any foreign government that they're meeting with as part of the establishing of relations, because relationships really matter. I mean, we're not talking about a country that either the U.S. is completely uh, an enemy state of. Right? It's, it's not like he's, he's meeting with the North Koreans or with the Iranians, meeting with the Assad regime. He's meeting with the Russians. Now, the Russians do some very bad stuff. Don't get me wrong. But the Russians are also not able to be ignored. The Chinese also do. For those who are so hawkish now in Russia, I would point out the Chinese also do some very bad stuff. But do you see anyone calling for Trump to just cut off all relations with China? No more. You know, we, we, need, to, we need to beef up and, and, and get more harsh on our diplomacy. Do you see anybody asking the Trump administration to denounce the Chinese premier? for the human rights violations that are constantly going on in Russia? Do we see any of members of the press trying to corner a Trump administration official and say, China doesn't have a free press. There is no First Amendment in China. There is no freedom of speech. There's no freedom, really, in China. So can we just get you on record saying that the Chinese Central Committee, the Communist Party of China, is a bunch of 
self-dealing thugs, um, and and they're not deserving of any respect. Can we get you on record to say that? Now, anybody who knows anything about international affairs and international relations would say, that is unwise. That's not the way you want to approach China, at least from go, from the start. But that's what they've been doing with Russia. Russia is back to near-Soviet status in the views of so many Democrats. Democrats who were sheepish at best on Russia for the eight years of the Obama administration. Now what do we see? Oh, Putin's such a thug. I can't believe Trump would talk to him or even say anything nice about him. Can't you just go on record and talk about how Putin kills innocent people? We even saw a little Marco poll on this, Marco Rubio. You know, a little bit of grandstanding on the, well, can we call Russia, can we call Putin a war criminal? Uh, is that maybe technically true? Sure. But can you call the the Chinese premier a, a human rights, a human rights criminal? Do you want to do that? Why wouldn't you do that? Well, at some point, realism should factor into the way you do foreign policy. And we have a very important relationship with China. We also are in competition with China. China views itself as the long-term inheritor of the superpower mantle. That's what they think is coming their way, and there's plenty of reason to believe that it will eventually. And the Russians are resurgent in some ways. Economically, sure, they're depressed, but as a friend of mine who is Polish, and oftentimes you get very astute analysis of Russia from Poles, there are many different countries around the world where if you really want to know what's going on inside the country, ask their near neighbor that is their uh, their hated rival, and you'll get some interesting insights. The Poles and the Russians have a very interesting relationship stretching back for quite a while. And she once told me, because uh, I brought up, I said, you know, the sanctions in Russia, don't you think that at some point there'd be political ramifications inside Russia for the Putin regime? I know he's a strong man, but wouldn't there be some protests? Or, and she said, no, no, you don't understand. Nothing brings the Russian people together like suffering. I thought that she's so right. And every, by the way, every Russia expert that I've posed that to, that I've relayed that quote to, just from a friend of mine who happens to be Polish, uh, has said that's absolutely right. So in our dealings with Russia, sanctions have not been an effective tool. Um, But they want Trump to denounce Russia. They don't ask him to denounce China, but they want him to denounce Russia in ways that would make the relationship poisoned from the start. And then when any administration figure... Uh, walks back from that a little bit or is not willing to go down that path, they say, see, the Kremlin controls them. See, we're going to find out all this stuff from the investigation. I'm glad as well, by the way, that Nunez um, pulled the uh, Logan, well, talked about the Logan Act. And from what I, it's like what I've been telling you, too. Anytime a member of the press reaches for the Logan Act, you know they're they're grasping, they're desperate. And at least Nunez finally laid it down. Play it. Like he was telling the Russian ambassador, don't worry about what the president just announced. We're going to do something different when we get. Yeah, I don't know that that's what was said, but if that was said, I don't know what the problem would be with that. I mean, I would, I think Isn't that's that that's exactly what he what he should be doing. Isn't that one U.S. administration negotiating with the Logan Act? You're a Logan Act guy. I didn't mention the Logan Act. I'm just saying, if one it's administration, ridiculous. it's ridiculous. If the Lo- the Logan Act's ridiculous, you guys all know that's ridiculous. I think that's Jim Shudo from CNN, who who clearly hates Trump, by the way. So anyway, I think I heard his voice in the background. I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, the Logan Act is ridiculous. It would not withstand constitutional muster. And honestly, the Congress, the Republican Congress, just as a little as a little uh, a, a little slap down, they should just repeal the Logan Act. Just do it. Just repeal it and be like, yeah, that law, that's not a law anymore because we think it's unconstitutional. 
just get it out of there. So we don't have to hear about it anymore. Uh, but this is what we see happening. The, the continued calls for an investigation. Oh, and I, this is what really got me thinking about this today. I almost missed this one. Now, all of a sudden, the press likes George W. Bush again. Why is that? I'm old enough to remember when Bush was a hated warmonger responsible for Abu Ghraib, for human rights violations at black sites, for uh, horrendous conditions. And I'm not saying this is what I thought, but this is what the progressives were saying about it. For terrible conditions at Guantanamo Bay. Oh, America's answer to the gulag, the left was saying. Anybody, by the way, who has read... Uh, the Gulag Archipelago would recognize that comparing Guantanamo Bay to that is incredibly intellectually dishonest. So I'm just putting that out there. Solzhenitsyn, well worth the read if you have the time. Um, Where was I? Oh, yes. So Bush has come out now and said that he is in favor of getting to the bottom of Russia-Trump connections. And all of a sudden the media is like, oh, Bush, he was a good guy. Yeah, we liked Bush. Let's let's trot Bush out here. Let's trot George W. Bush out and let him weigh in on this subject because he's taking a position that allows us to say, see, even honest Republicans want an investigation of Trump. Okay, sure, they might want an investigation, but I already told you what the playbook is, and you're going to see this at work for months going forward. They're going to call for an investigation. They're going to tell you what the results of the investigation are, and they're also going to tell you the investigation is tainted. So when the results aren't what they say they would be, they're already covered and they can keep talking about it and keep talking about it and never shut up about how Trump is in Russia's pocket and the Kremlin is the reason he beat Hillary and wah, wah, get me the world's smallest violin. Democrats get to have a big pity party. They should all go run and hide in the safe space together somewhere. They can play with stuffed animals and have milk and cookies. 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with American Now continues right after the break. So, team, I wanted to give you a little bit of background before we're joined uh, by our, our guest, uh, our friend Jack Murphy, in the next segment here to talk. He's a former special operations veteran himself. We're going to talk about this Yemen raid and, and now the, the father of the um, chief petty officer, William Owens, who's a member of SEAL Team 6, who was killed in this Yemen raid. Here's the background on it. So... Uh, Yemen is in the midst of an insurgency, uh, of a civil war, actually. And you have various factions, including a, uh, a Shia faction that is fighting against the central government. And you also have al-Qaeda as another player in all of this. And so when you, when you look at what's happening right now in Yemen, you have to understand that not only is there an al-Qaeda issue um, right now, and al-Qaeda actually controlling some territory, um, but you have a very difficult uh, uh, fight for the Hadi-led government and its allies. There's the Islamic State present in Yemen. Uh, There's the Houthis, the Revolutionary Committee and Supreme Political Council of the Houthis, and the Houthis are that Shia group, and they're backed by the Iranians. So Yemen is, as Trump would say, a mess, and it really is a mess. And al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, uh, has been known to be the most active, in part because it has the freedom to operate, to train, to equip, to plot, to to plan. AQAP has been very active in its efforts 
to attack the West, to engage in massive counterterrorism, I'm sorry, massive terrorism operations against uh, the United States and against Europe. And they've been involved in some very well-known plots, uh, especially in the, as we got to know, Inspire magazine, which was a propaganda booklet put out by AQAP uh, that told people how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom. That's the formula that was used by the Boston Marathon bombers and some of their other exhortations to jihadists all over the world. They were taken up and that was uh, how some attacks were plotted out and conducted. Uh, and you also have Anwar Alaki who's considered at one point the most uh, prolific. He was really a mouthpiece for Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but was involved with uh, the plotting plotting against U.S. interests and European interests and was taken out by an Obama administration drone strike. As we know, U.S. citizen, no trial, blown up by a drone. Not saying I wouldn't have done the same thing, but I wouldn't pretend to be Mr. Nobel Peace Prize and uh, humanitarian rights champion above reproach and also be taking out U.S. citizens without trial uh, with lethal force. Okay, so I'm just saying, you know, you got you to gotta own that. You got to do that and own it. Uh, the reports are that this raid on January 20th. So that's the backdrop of Yemen, and I wanted to give you some sense of that. And look, the Saudis are building a fence, a wall on their border with Yemen. They're trying to keep the mess that is Yemen out of. Yemen's also the first country in the world that is believed to be on the way to running out of water, potable water entirely. It is going dry. Uh, They will be in a state of perpetual drought at the current rate. It's an incredibly poor country. Uh, It's very rugged terrain. And interesting, actually, the bin Ladens originally from Yemen. Uh, Salman bin Laden, bin Laden's father, uh, moved from Yemen to Saudi Arabia and started a construction empire in the bin Laden family. Anyway, um, that's how that happened. But the... Uh, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is a prolific plotter against aviation, against dense population, civilian population areas. Uh, AQAP has been spreading the propaganda of Al-Qaeda around the world, as well as the tools and tactics via the web to do it and recruiting people. It is a festering sore on the world, uh, AQAP, and it was even a few years ago noted as the most dangerous Al-Qaeda franchise. So on January 29th, there was a raid, a raid involving the elite operators of our Navy SEAL Team 6. And there was a 50-minute firefight. And during that firefight, we lost KIA Chief Petty Officer William Owens. There were also a number of U.S. operators wounded, though none killed, thankfully. And uh, there were a number of civilians killed, including reportedly the 8-year-old daughter of Anwar Alaki himself. It's also reported that they were going after Qasim al-Raimi, the head of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So this was a a special operations raid against a high-value target, an HVT, Qasim al-Raimi, against one of the most dangerous al-Qaeda franchises, if not the most dangerous al-Qaeda franchise in the world. And it turned into a firefight, and things went south, and we lost one of ours, and there were some civilians killed in the crossfire. Now, of course, this is being politicized. There's a lot of discussion as to whether it was a successful raid or not. We're going to get into that and much more coming up here with our friend Jack Murphy, former operator. You're going to want to hear it. Team Buck, stay with me. 
The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's why. That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. All right, team, welcome back. As you know, I'm former CIA counterterrorism center and Iraq office, and I'm going to have a conversation now. This will be sort of like a debrief between the two of us. A conversation with Jack Murphy. He was an eight-year Army Special Operations veteran who served as a sniper and team leader in the 3rd Ranger Battalion and as a senior weapons sergeant on a military freefall team in 5th Special Forces Group. He is the editor-in-chief of softrep.com. Jack, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Buck. All right, let's talk about this Yemen raid. Uh, This is going at, from what we know, from what's been reported, and anything else also you can share from your softrep sources by all means, uh, but this was a, a raid using uh, U.S. boots on the ground, special operators going after a AQAP, Al-Qaeda, high-value target. And there was a gunfight, and unfortunately we lost one of ours. Why is there so much uh, controversy over this? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we're 16 years into the global war on terror at this point, and these raids are, I don't want to say a common occurrence, but they happen every so often outside of you know traditional theaters like Afghanistan or Iraq and now Syria. Uh, I, I think probably the reasons are manifold. One of the big ones being is that it's the first uh, military incursion into a foreign country, Yemen in this case, by the Trump administration. So that puts an extra spotlight on it. And then, of course, the fact that one SEAL operator and uh, one aircraft was lost uh, just kind of adds fuel to the fire. And then, of course, there's the surrounding controversies around the raid. And this sort of raid, though, is not I mean, yes, it's unusual in the context of this was in Yemen, but uh, operators going after HVTs in Iraq, Afghanistan and other places around the world. This is ongoing, as you as you say, by the way, I like to use the global war on terror. GWAT, when I was in CIA, it's a good way to explain a vast apparatus of military and, and covert action and uh, intelligence operations all over the world. I, I can't think of a better term, and when they've tried to come up with a better term, administrations have failed. But but I digress. Uh, this, though, seemed to me to be a, a pretty straightforward uh, decision to make for the Trump administration. It was planned for months under the Obama administration. I think President Obama was happy to allow the uh, follow-on administration to take the reins on this one. Didn't want this to be the case, but anytime, and I think this maybe bears uh, re- repeating in this case, anytime you're putting even the most elite U.S. warriors in harm's way, there is the possibility that we are going to take losses. I mean, that doesn't in any way minimize what's going on here, but it is also a realistic view of what happens. There, We're going to lose people if we're going to be aggressive and going after high-value al-Qaeda targets. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the reality of the case. No matter how well planned the operation is, no matter how good the intelligence is, there's always the potential for things to go wrong. And, you know, they often do. And sometimes, you know, our soldiers, they sometimes you have to do things you don't necessarily want to do, like launching on a target that perhaps isn't as well developed as you'd like it to be. And I don't I'm not saying that's the case here. Uh, In far as far as this Yemen raid, I couldn't really speak to that. Um, but you're right that these raids are not uncommon. You know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, there have been times where we were doing multiple operations during one period of darkness. Things have dwindled down a little bit and then cranked up a little bit during the uh, as ISIS came to prominence. 
but uh, actual direct action special operations missions are not uncommon. They happen fairly often. And there is an inherent risk in these operations. There's no question about it. Yeah, all it takes, and you know about this firsthand. I know about it from seeing the intelligence and, and, and watching some of it on the screens in theater. But all it takes is one sentry to raise the alarm, you know, a, a dog somewhere at the at the compound, whether you're talking about, you know, somewhere in Helmand province or out in Anbar, wherever you may be. And you find yourself in the middle of a firefight, and in firefights, it's not just the bad guys who unfortunately get shot. I wish it were the case, but that's not always the case, as we know. Yeah, I mean, operations can get compromised in any number of ways. Uh, I think even the Department of Defense said in this case that everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. And you make contingencies for those types of eventualities, but it only goes so far. I mean, it's still combat. (laughs) We're still at war. Uh, I think a lot of Americans forget about that or maybe don't want to acknowledge it. But, I mean, the the reality of it is not like a movie. Like you said, it's not nice, clean headshots shooting the bad guy between the eyes. I mean, things get ugly out there. And uh, that leads sort of to a larger conversation, not just about this Yemen raid, but about the global war on terror and where do our counterterrorism operations fit in? Are they making America safer? What is America's place in the world? And these are sorts of the questions that we have to ask ourselves that I think are, are much bigger than just one raid in Yemen. We're talking to Jack Murphy. He's an eight-year Army Special Operations veteran and a sniper in the 3rd Ranger, Ranger Battalion. Uh, Jack, I, I think you raise a really important point here, which is that if we're going to—the Trump administration has said— a lot of things about and President Trump himself about how we're going to fight against the Islamic State. He said even as recently as earlier today, we don't fight wars to win anymore. We're going to fight wars to win. Uh, he's saying that he's going to be more aggressive against ISIS and against all of our counterterrorism, or all of our terrorism and jihadist enemies all over the world. I think, though, that there's also a, a, a might be a disconnect that the American people need to be prepared for. And that is and, and you alluded to this. It's not always like the bin Laden raid where we didn't actually lose any U.S. operators. Uh, It's not like Call of Duty, certainly, either, which is a video game that I know many millions of people play. uh, But it it gets messy out there. It's dangerous. And if you're going to be taking a more aggressive posture and going after targets that know we're coming after them. I mean, this Yemen operation is a prime example. We, We can either wait and hope that we get a totally clean shot, maybe with a drone, and you wait and wait, and maybe there's a mass casualty attack planned in the meantime. Uh, you know, an airliner goes down with 200 people abroad somewhere because of the planning of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. We can wait until we get that perfect drone shot and hope that a major attack doesn't happen, or you can send in operators who this is what they train to do, but everyone needs to understand that if they want Trump to be more aggressive, if they want this commander-in-chief to be relentless in his efforts to destroy jihadist enemies, whether al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, or others all over the world, that's going to mean increased risks to U.S. operators. I don't think there's a way around that. Yeah, no, actually, I completely agree. I, I think, you know, talking tough on terrorism is something that sounds really good on the campaign trail. It sounds really good when you make a Facebook post. But the the reality of it is that you have to be psychologically prepared that the body bags are going to start coming home. Uh, that, that's just the reality of it. We, we get more intense. We ratchet things up and get more aggressive in going after ISIS instead of this sort of semi-clandestine approach that we've been taking. And we're going to have American soldiers coming back dead. And uh, I'm not saying that um, full stop, we don't need to go, we shouldn't do it. I think that there's a number of different things that have to play into a decision like that. 
but we have to understand the realities of it. We can't throw our hands up in the air in shock when it happens as if we didn't know. So, uh, yeah, something we have to be ready for. I think we have to also add there, there are two other elements to this, two other layers with the reporting of this story. Again, this Yemen raid happened January 29th. It's gotten a lot of news coverage since then, people diving into it. Now, there's some aspects of this that we won't know about because the intelligence leading up to the raid is almost certainly classified and will not be declassified. They're not going to expose sources and methods of how we thought we may have found Qasem al-Raymi, the head of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula here, nor should we. I mean, there are some things, as you know, Jack, that no matter who it is, including the father of the deceased, including this gold, gold star father uh, who's been talking now to the press and talking about how he won't meet with Trump, Uh, We do not expose sources and methods, even to families. And that's what you, whether you're on my side, CIA, or on your side as a special operator, that is the reality of the moment you step in to the red zone and you're you're, you're out there um, outside the wire. Uh, I I do want to add into this that there's a notion, I think, that many have that Obama, with these precision drone strikes, uh, created a form of warfare where we don't take risk. Uh, That's not true because it also... um, entails its own risk. One is that I don't think it's it's necessarily as effective as capturing. We were hoping to capture here, it was initially reported, human, uh, human subjects on the ground who can provide intelligence later. But also, the civilian casualties in this Yemen raid came up as part of the criticism. And I think it's, fa- it's fascinating to watch the media now talk about this one raid and the civilian casualties, which are always regrettable. And there was near silence on how, with a lot of drone strikes, they're blowing up people left and right who had nothing to do with terrorism, but they were close to a guy who did. Yeah, no, you're uh, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, the drone strikes we've been doing in the federally administrated tribal areas in Pakistan have killed a lot of civilians. And uh, our government, both across the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, were not forthcoming with the amount of civilian casualties, the amount of collateral damage that were done during those drone strikes. So this is something you also have to weigh now. We, even though that collateral damage is horrible, we also have to consider that if there's any evidence at all that sending in ground troops results in less collateral damage. Uh, if that evidence does exist, I haven't seen it. Um, you know, sending infantry in or sending special operations in, I don't think there's really any real metric you can point to and prove that there's less collateral damage when you send in ground forces. But you're right that it is quite odd that Americans have this sort of psychological separation. Like when we use a drone and we blow up an entire family somewhere, they don't see that as war. They don't perceive that as war. And and that's a very odd way to think about how America pursues the war on terror. Yeah, it certainly has very real effects uh, in the countries where these sorts where these kinds of strikes are happening. I want to ask you about the the father of uh, Chief Petty Officer William Owens. Uh, he has said that he will not meet with Trump, and he is calling for an investigation. Uh, look, every every gold star parent deserves uh, a debt of a gratitude the nation can never really pay, and we have nothing but respect for them. But I also think that there, there are some politics being played here by those who are elevating uh, this gold star father's demands for an investigation as though they are sacrosanct. There are aspects of this mission that are classified that will remain classified And I don't think he's going to get the answers that he wants. And that's not because the Trump administration is covering up incompetence necessarily. It's because that, as I said before, you sign up for these these sorts of clandestine operations and even your family doesn't necessarily get the entire full story. Uh, How do we make sense of that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, Bill Owen is obviously upset about the loss of his son, even angry, and uh, I don't blame him for that. He has the right to be angry uh, if that's where he needs to go, and that's fine. And calling for an investigation is okay, too. You know, we live in a democracy, and it's all right for our government to investigate, not a criminal investigation, mind you. I'm not talking about that. I mean, an investigation just to see if anything went wrong and what could potentially be done in the future, and I think we should be open to that. Um, and realize that calling for an investigation or asking questions doesn't um, smear uh, that SEAL operator's name or, or the unit in any manner. Uh, but in the political spectrum, the political picture of this Yemen operation, I find it very interesting that politically it's being used almost the same way that the Republicans used Benghazi against the Obama administration, that the family members and victims are kind of trotted out in front of the cameras and once again, our military and our intelligence community is sort of thrown under the bus for political expediency. And if anything, it really shows how few principles both of these political parties have. They'll use these things to their ends. And there's really not I don't think it has anything to do with patriotism. That's for sure. Jack Murphy's an eight year Army Special Forces operation veteran, sniper, team leader and third ranger battalion. And uh, Jack is also author of Gray Matter Splatter. And he's editor in chief at softrep.com. Everybody wants to read his work, and they're doing great stuff over at SoftRep. Go to SoftRep, S-O-F-R-E-P, dot com for special operations report. Jack, thank you for your service and your time tonight, sir. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Buck. All right, talk to you soon. Team, we'll uh, finish this up on the flip side of the break. Stay with me. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. And uh, please do download our show. Uh, Subscribe would be even better. You can go on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, you can also subscribe on iTunes. You just go in your iTunes search bar, type in Buck Sexton, B-U-C-K-S-E-X-T-O-N, type in my name, look up Buck Sexton with America Now, press subscribe, and bam, never have to worry about it again. Every day the show will just appear, and you can even take that link if you really want to help the Freedom Hut and you want to help us grow, which I cannot thank you enough for all, the, all that Team Buck has done already for the show because we are growing fast. Um, you can send that link to a friend or post it on your own Facebook page and just give your own comments as to why you think it matters. Oh, please do also, if you don't mind, write, uh, if, if, if just a few of you would do this, and if dozens of you would, that would be amazing. If even more, fantastic. But write a some thoughts under the podcast. Review it. Go to review on iTunes. Gives people a sense of what it is we talk about here, and uh, I would really appreciate that, especially for some, maybe some of my original squad from the Saturday shows wants to get in there and let everybody know what it is that we do here. So I have gone almost a full three-hour show uh, today without diving into the Oscars, which I will admit to you all now because I'm, I'm an honest man with my team. Team is like my family. Uh, I, I did watch all of the Oscars last night. I watched it with my brother. So we were having some bro time. We are broing out with the Oscars, and it was incredibly boring. It was a reminder to me that I, I don't know enough about pop culture to even know, I, I had seen, I don't think I had seen a single nominated movie this year, not one, because I refuse to go to the movies because they're too expensive, the seats are uncomfortable. I also don't like being forced to sit anywhere uh, for more than two hours. I'll make an exception for uh, the opera. Yeah, that's right. Little little latte drinker buck coming out there. I'll make an exception for the, uh, for the opera uh, here in New York City, maybe for the Philharmonic. But generally speaking, I don't like to have to sit in one place for two hours or more. Even really 90 minutes tests my patience. I like to watch shows, 40 minutes to an hour, and then stop and do whatever I want. And if I watch another one, I can. So that's why I like Netflix and 
uh, Amazon Prime and all these other platforms, Hulu, these platforms you can watch shows. I like shows. Movies for me now, I grew up watching so many movies, but I just don't have the patience anymore. I had not seen a single one of these movies. Uh, it, I don't think, I, yeah, I didn't see one. And of course, there was that moment last night where La La Land was, an, and you all know this. I'm not telling you. Know, I'm like the last person you're hearing this from after 50 people have probably already told you. La La Land was announced as the best picture, and then of course it was uh, Moonlight instead. Uh, but there was another moment. We're gonna we do a lot of politics on the show and, and international affairs. Uh, there was another moment where the of course the Oscars got a little political, although it was the lowest viewership the Oscars has had in almost a decade. So fewer and fewer people care about this giant ceremony of self-congratulation for the Hollywood elite. But a an Iranian filmmaker won for best documentary. And here is what was here was his written statement read on his behalf. And notice, remember, this is a, a U.S. based award ceremony for an industry dominated by the United States. And here we are bringing it, honoring people from around the world, in some cases for their kind of who gives a whatever doc for their documentaries. I mean, documentaries, it's a good way to, it's a good way to, uh, to invest and lose money is, is in most documentaries, you know, unless you think you're just going to run the table at the art, art house film festivals. Uh, but here's what this Iranian documentarian had to say via a proxy. Play it, please. My absence is out of respect for the people of my country and those of other six nations whom have been disrespected by the inhumane law that bans entry of immigrants to the U.S. <laughs> Dividing the world into the us and our enemies categories creates fear, a deceitful justification for aggression and war. These wars prevent democracy and human rights. I just wonder if this documentarian from Iran, does he have any uh, cute things to say about his home country and what they do? And democracy in Iran and women's rights and hatred of uh, hatred of Israel, hatred of Jews, America, the great Satan. Does he talk tough about Iran or just just America, just the shining light of the world, just the best country in the world that does the most for human rights and freedom? You know, real tough guy talking about America. Uh, and also, by the way, it's not an immigrant ban. That's nonsense. And this guy's lucky to get you know any. Ugh, it makes me mad. All right, I ended on a mad note, but. Until tomorrow, my friends, shields high.